Welcome back, everyone. This is The Change Log, and I'm your host, Adam Stikoviak. This is episode 147, and today Jared and I are talking to Chris McCord, talking about Elixir on top of Erlang, Phoenix, the web framework. Definitely got me and Jared thinking about concurrency and Elixir for an upcoming project. Phoenix sounds really cool. You're going to love this conversation with Chris. we got some awesome sponsors, Codeship, TopTow, and Postico. We'll tell you about TopTow and Postico later in the show, but our friends at CodeShip have this awesome new feature that help you deploy to production so much faster than you're doing right now. It's called Parallel CI, and if you want to run faster tests and have your builds built and in production quicker, you've got to run your tests in parallel. With Parallel CI, you can now split your test commands into 10 test pipelines, or up to 10 test pipelines. This lets you run your test suite much faster than before and drastically reduce the time it takes for you to push, to push your code to production and get your builds run. They integrate with GitHub and Bitbucket. You can deploy to cloud services like Heroku, AWS, and many more. And you can get started today by trying out their free plan, which includes 100 builds a month and five private projects. Or you can use our offer code, the ChangeLaw Podcast. Again, that offer code is the ChangeLaw Podcast. And with that code, you'll get 20% off any plan you choose with CodeShip for three months. Head to CodeShip.com slash the ChangeLaw to get started. And now on to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. We got Chris McCord on the call today. We're talking about some cool stuff today. Elixir, the language, uh, Phoenix, the framework. Chris, welcome to the show. How's it going? And we also got Jared Santon online. Jared, how are you today, man? Doing better. Better than I was yesterday. Yeah, yesterday was a bad day. That was a bad day. Bad day. Did you, did you sleep a lot, of, a lot of time? I was trying to sleep, mostly tossing and turning, you know. But uh, all good today. Feeling better. Did Slack keep you up? and whatnot ah uh, uh, everything was keeping me up uh, it was a bad day so chris you hail from dayton ohio right that's right not phoenix arizona no not yet <laughs> we established in the pre-show that chris would be slightly cooler well at least i did if you were from phoenix arizona because of phoenix the the, the framework it's just it would make sense it, uh, or maybe he had named the framework dayton framework see <laughs> Come on, Chris. <laughs> the, the, lo- the logo wouldn't have been nearly as cool, though. So I don't know. I mean, you got some. You got the date. What the the Daytona Five Hundred up there, right? No, that's 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 that wrong a, state. Is that a different state? <laughs> that's uh, Florida. So that's right, Florida. Florida. We, What's in Dayton? Well, you know, isn't there something racing there? No, we we like we're where the Wright brothers were from, so we were first in flight. Except they okay. didn't, they built it here, but they flew it in North Carolina. So. Both states claim that we're both first in flight, so uh, that's probably our uh, only claim to fame. Gotcha. Well, you got some other claims to fame here, so let's let's dig deep here. So, you know, for those who not who do not know who you are, how do you introduce yourself to an audience like we got today? Um, I created the Phoenix framework. Uh, it's an Elixir web framework, and I also uh, just recently uh, authored uh, Metaprogramming Elixir for Pragprog. And uh, during the day, I build web applications at Little Lines. Little Lines, I like that. You know, you got a little shout out too in that uh, in your talk recently. Was it ElixirCon? Yep. Yeah. Um, I, was there people in the crowd that knew who Little Lines was? I think we got. Yeah, we had like that one little whoop. A small following. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who that was. But yeah, some someone did. <laughs> so yes. Jared's singing in the chat room behind the scenes, Daytona 500 classic. Yeah, that's that's just I that's, I confuse it all the time with Dayton, I, and I'm sorry. It's classic. That. I'm no, sorry. We, classic. We, we get that a right lot. There. We get that a lot. Yeah, you Google Dayton and you get Daytona 500 every time, <laughs> every time. All right. Well, Chris, we've been excited to get you on the show. We've had uh, multiple requests to have yes. shows on Elixir, uh, show on Phoenix. We have to. I think a few of our listeners, Alexander Quine was the one who originally said, hey, let's let's talk about Elixir on the show. And then following up to that was uh, Sebastian Sizduro, Sizduro, sorry, Sebastian, if I butcher that name, Sizduro, um, who said, uh, yes, let's talk about Elixir. And specifically, let's get Chris on the show to talk about Phoenix. So thanks to those guys for requesting this. And we're happy to have you here to talk about. What did they request that at? Uh, they request that on our ping repo, which is github.com slash the changelog slash ping. Yep. And I think they reached out to me. Someone reached out to me on IRC, Lixerling, and then. Oh, is that right? And opened that, that issue. 
and made it happen. Nice. Yeah. Love that, man. Yep. The elixir advocates out there, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And little lines, too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so elixir is an interesting young language. Um, seems to be gr- growing quite the following. And seems like it's got your, uh, it's caught your fancy. And so why don't you just start off, we'll, we'll talk about Elixir and then we'll get into Phoenix later. But I'd like to hear about Elixir from your perspective, Chris, as one who is now developing lots of stuff uh, in the language. Sure. So yeah, so you mentioned Elixir is a long, young language and that's true, uh, but we are at a 1.0 uh, stable release. We've, we've been there since uh, July last year and kind of the cool thing about Elixir is it's built on top of uh, the Erlang Virtual Machine. So we are a very young language, but we're using um, Erlang to kind of bootstrap the language itself. So um, we didn't have to kind of reinvent the wheel for a lot of the underpinnings. And that let Elixir kind of get out of the gates quickly. And then we also have, you know, 20 plus years of innovation and libraries under the hood that we can take advantage of uh, today. Uh, So for those that don't know, uh, Elixir compiles down to um, Erlang bytecode. And it runs on the Erlang virtual machine. And um, Erlang was kind of an obscure language, at least for me, uh, a few years ago. I had I had heard of it, but I wasn't really aware of it. Um, never heard about it in college. Erlang kind of had this nugget of innovation for the last 25 years, is what I tell people. You know, they basically run half the world's uh, telecommunication systems. And um, so they, it's been operating um, at high scale and high reliability for decades. And only now, recently... People are starting to take notice of our most of our modern languages aren't really great at concurrency, and now they're kind of finding out that Erlang solved these problems 20 years ago. Um, so it's pretty cool that uh, you know you might say that other modern languages like Go kind of you know tackle concurrency, but Erlang from the very beginning had three core values, which I think most not any language that I'm aware of targets. It was a language that needed to be highly concurrent. Um, Highly distributed because they wanted to run it on multiple telecom switches in the 80s, and then a highly fault tolerant because you wanted these things to stay online forever. And they kind of built the language around those needs and developed kind of the standard library around these specific problems. And that those specific problems actually map perfectly onto kind of the multi-core age that we have today. Um, so Elixir builds on top of that uh, Erlang innovation, adding um, some modern features that you would expect with a, a language like uh, metaprogramming was big for me. Uh, it adds um, polymorphism through uh, protocols. So it borrows some ideas uh, from Clojure and some other places to really give you this modern language with all this great innovation for the last couple decades. So did you had you previously tried Erlang directly, or did you come to it from the Elixir side? No, so I went straight to Elixir, but so what got me into it initially is I've been doing Ruby development professionally for the last uh, six years or so. And I wanted to do uh, WebSockets in my Rails app. I was building some kind of real-time features into uh, my Rails app. I built this gem called Sync that let you, let you build, let, let you do like real-time Rails partials. And it worked well, but I had to jump through kind of all these hoops to push out real-time events. I couldn't do it in my uh, Rails app itself. I had to kind of offload it to an event machine thread, or I had to offload it to like a separate Fay server. And it was like all this messiness and I uh, got into it and it wasn't going to scale, scale well at all. And uh, so then I started looking at like, you know, what are some other people doing? What languages are they using? And that's when I looked at Erlang. And I think that was when, that was when WhatsApp was not yet sold for $20 billion. But at the time, um, there was an article I read uh, a couple years ago, two or three years ago, that was about they were using Erlang and they were getting a million concurrent connections per server. And uh, that kind of blew my mind because I was looking at getting maybe, you know, 100 connections uh, on my Rails app. Um, so that kind of spiked my interest into Erlang. And then I remembered Elixir that I had just kind of come across. Um, so I kind of checked Elixir out and then that kind of got the ball rolling on on everything. Mm, so you came at it from the Ruby p- perspective, which it seems like it's fitting because Elixir also has a kind of a Ruby pedigree. Is that right? Yeah, so we'll see. We see a lot of people coming over from Ruby. I think you know a large part of that is uh, Jose Valim, the creator of Elixir, um, was a Rails core team member, and he's written probably. If you're doing Rails development, you use half of yeah. the gems he's ever created. Uh, so I think his proximity to the Ruby community has brought a lot of people over. And then also, yeah, at a, at a glance, uh, the syntax does look familiar. I will say that that's kind of like a, a veneer because once you get into it, the semantics are very different. But at least 
at a glance, you're like, hey, this looks kind of similar. So it's kind of like a double double whammy to for Rubius to kind of jump in. Awesome. So um, tell us a little bit more about the language itself. So it builds on top of Erlang. It has some metaprogramming. Is it a functional language? Is it an object-oriented language? Give us some of the, the aspects. Sure. Of it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a functional language, and uh, it's immutable. And uh, it interops, it has full interoperability with Erlang. So you can call Erlang from Elixir and you can call Elixir from Erlang. So any uh, off-the-shelf Erlang library, um, you can just drop in and it just works. And that's what kind of let us, um, as a community, move forward and get a release out soon because we didn't have to kind of, you know, reinvent the wheel for everything. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it adds, it solves some pain points um, that people have had with Erlang, uh, one is, at least for me, some people really dislike metaprogramming, but for me, coming from like a, a Ruby background, I, I love metaprogramming. kind of lets me um, distill my domain problems and write beautiful code. Uh, so it adds metaprogramming, which was kind of a big feature for me. And then it adds, um, like I said, polymorphism. It borrowed the idea from uh, Clojure where you can get um, polymorphism but without object orientation. So you, you can go to functional programming, you don't have to throw away all this um, all these ideas of polymorphism, which are good, you can kind of get that, but in a functional uh, paradigm. Uh, so for me, that's been really nice. And then uh, it has really great, like just simple things that you expect in a modern language, like uh, really great Unicode uh, string handling, which has been historically uh, problematic in Erlang. And um, it really focuses on um, great um, experiences, like developer experience. So it has a build tool that it ships with, uh, project generator. So you can just say uh, mix uh, new, give it a project name, and it will generate you know, idiomatic uh, project structure for you. It ships with a test unit framework. I can just say mix test uh, to run my tests. And then it also comes with a package manager. And kind of all these things were uh, missing or not missing. They were not uh, shipping with the base Erlang installation. And it kind of Erlang didn't focus on getting up and running quickly because historically they've been solving, I'd say, like grittier problems. Uh, so yeah. it came in and I think solved some some filled in some big gaps, and I think you know Jose uh, said it best that when he first looked into Erlang, he loved everything he saw, but he hated the things that he didn't see, and that's what kind of Elixir came about is filling in those mm-hmm. gaps and still building off all the things that he loved. That's interesting. I have a little bit of a history with Erlang, like a few days, like a like a weekend with Erlang, where I, I thought, oh, I'm going to kind of bend my mind a little bit and and the syntax itself it was for me difficult to stretch my mind around started to get to it by the end of the weekend but didn't have a real real world use case for it back then so it didn't stick what's the syntax of uh of elixir i know it's kind of difficult to describe code in words but if, if you had to compare it to a language or to a few languages what would you say that it feels like writing well cool. so i will say the syntax is beautiful and uh it, it definitely uh feels uh, it definitely feels like Ruby to some degree, uh, but it has even it has even more of a natural syntax than Ruby, and um, it has some neat. It stole we stole the idea of the pipeline operator. If you're familiar, um, Clojure has like threading macros, and F Sharp has the pipe operator. Um, so when you write Elixir, you structure your code. I'd say very differently than other functional programming languages that I've seen, just by virtue of having. The pipeline operator allows you to um, kind of flatten out a list of nested uh, function calls. So mm-hmm. it pipes the argument, uh, the result of one operation into the first argument of another function. So instead of like kind of trying to read your code backwards in a bunch of parentheses, it kind of flattens that out and just compiles down to the same nested function call. Um, so mm-hmm. it kind of, it made, when I first got into it, it made me feel like when I was writing Ruby of it, just it feels very natural and it's really pleasant to write. Um, but even more, which is surprising for me to say. So, like, it gives you things like pattern matching, which um, anytime I go back to my Ruby code, I, I lack these features, and it, it makes me kind of sad. So it's like the first time I had language envy coming from, uh, you know, a Ruby mindset of, you know, code should be beautiful, it should be a pleasant, you know, experience to write. Can you explain pattern matching that was a little bit? question, too. <laughs> yeah, so explain pattern matching in words. So I can write multiple uh, functions with the same name, and I can um, give the value of an argument, and that function will only be invoked if that pattern matches. So if I wrote like a uh, countdown function, I can pattern match. I could recursively call countdown and pattern match on zero, and that would be like the case where I'm done counting down. And then I could just pattern match on a variable like number and then recurse on 
countdown minus one, if that makes any sense. That's a very si simple example, but the virtual machine yeah. lets you kind of uh, destructure um, any data structure. So I can say, if I have a list, I want to, I could pattern match out the first three elements of that list and then get the head of, or get the tail of the list, like all the remaining elements. And I would have those all in separate variables. So it lets you kind of destructure mm. things really naturally. So does the arguments to the method or to the function, they become part of the, the method signature? Yes, exactly. And so you'd have multiple ones of the same name, and as long as the arguments vary, they would call different methods. Yeah, exactly. Fair to say? Yep, okay. and that's how you'll see... Interesting. You'll see that's kind of like idiomatic code. So you Elixir has like standard branch, like if statements unless, or if expressions unless expressions, but you use them a mm -hmm. lot less often because you have pattern matching. And that's kind of one of the staples of functional programming, correct? You're going to find that in enclosure. You're going to find that in you know Lisps, right? Yeah, I think you'll find that in most functional um, areas. And to me, it's it's a it's huge. I mean, once you experience it, it makes writing any code without it for me a kind of a painful process. Yeah, it seems like it helped melt away conditionals that would otherwise be checking these things, and then you know, you know, branching depending on the arguments. Um, you could just melt those away with different methods. Yep. So you, you'll use if occasionally, but if I if I'm using if a couple times in a function, um, I start sweating a little bit, thinking like you know something here is not quite right. Hmm. Interesting. So you're building a web framework. Elixir comes from you know, a Rails core team member. Is Elixir built for the web, or is it a more of a general purpose programming language? It's built. I would say it wasn't. I mean, Jose comes from a web background. Uh, but the neat thing about Erlang is you, you can target um, kind of like the embedded space or the web. So it's kind of, I would say, a general purpose in that you can go both high level and low level with it because it came, the, Erlang comes from, you know, running on telecom switches. So people are using it um, in the embedded space um, pretty successfully today. But then it's also great for, you know, higher level building any kind of thing that you would run, you would consider a server. Uh, so kind of, Web applications come into that naturally. Um, mm -hmm. You look at like WhatsApp; they're running their ent their entire operation on it. Um, I think they were. I mentioned a million connections per server, but now I heard they're up to two million connections per server. And I think they hit three million during a spike once, and um, they're running four hundred plus million users all on Erlang. And that you know that's yeah they had something like thirty engineers too or yeah some, exactly some so ridiculously small amount of engineers for how many users yeah, they were four hundred million users and, and thirty engineers to kind of prove how um, robust Erlang is and Elixir builds on top of that so the standard library um, kind of gives you these um, tried and true mechanisms for building out distributed fault tolerant applications and um, things uh, tend to just work cool so I saw your video at ElixirConf which we'll link up to in the show notes. And one thing you said is that you're you love if all of your consulting work, not just your your you know personal projects, but all your consulting projects, hopefully eventually at some point will be written in Elixir. If you had to describe it, you know, in one in one phrase, what is it about Elixir that has you so excited? If you had to distill it down, what would you say? Uh, so I will two phrases. Um, so one, it lets me. I can write highly performant code without sacrificing productivity, and I can be highly productive without sacrificing performance. And it's kind of a play on words, but it's kind of the holy grail. Like I come from, you know, writing a lot of uh, Rails applications where I'm sacrificing that concurrency and that performance, but the um, productivity and the feeling of building these things is so great. Um, but Elixir um, gives me both of those um, performance and productivity. Any drawbacks or things you've run into that have been not so great? Uh, so because Elixir is so young, um, you're definitely going to have access to a lot less off-the-shelf uh, libraries. So if you can't just do gem install device and have user authentication yet. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd say that lack of off-the-shelf packages and also the, the learning curve is pretty steep compared to if you're coming from any kind of object-oriented background and you want to get into you know, Ruby or get into uh, Python, you're, it's pretty straightforward because, you know, an object's an object. Um, but coming into functional programming, at least for me, Elixir was my first functional language. The learning curve, initially, I, I call it like the frustration gap where you're like, you feel dumb, you're not getting anything done, something that should, looks like it should be simple, you can't figure out. Um, 
it takes a little bit to get past that for things to actually like click in your mind, uh, thinking about programming differently. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a break now to hear a word from a show sponsor, but we'll be right back. And when we come back, we'll talk about Phoenix, the web framework. TopTile is the best place to work as a freelance software developer. If you're freelancing right now as a software developer and you're looking for a way to work with top clients on projects that are interesting, challenging, and using the technologies you want to use, TopTile might just be the place for you. Working as a freelance software developer with TopTile means that your days of searching for long-term, high-quality work and getting paid what you're worth will be over. Let's face it, you're an awesome developer and you deserve to be compensated like one. Joining TopTile means you'll have the opportunity to travel the world as an elite engineer. On top of that, TopTile can help provide the software, hardware, and support you need to work effectively no matter where you are in the world. Head to toptile.com slash developers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash developers to learn more and tell them the change law sent you. All right, we are back with Chris McCord. Chris, you fell in love with Elixir. You've been doing a lot of Rails. Um... You decided there needs to be a Rails for Elixir? Is that kind of the, the thought process there? So, or no? uh, y- yes and no. So I would say we, we, borrow, um, we bar- definitely borrow some ideas from Rails, um, but we're not trying to recreate Rails in Elixir. But I will say um, we are trying to borrow a lot, of the, um, a lot of the spirits of Rails. So like what Rails showed is you, if you have a community get together around like common conventions, uh, you can build great tooling. Uh, so I would say, I would caution to say that we are building, we aren't building Rails for Elixir, but in some ways we are. Um, we want to build a, a full-featured framework that the community can get together uh, and build great tooling around. So if I come into your Phoenix project, I can kind of know where things are, how to name them. Um, uh, just So to that degree, we are um, kind of replicating that similar uh, experience. Uh-huh. It's not unique. We've we've heard this before, though. I mean, uh, when we had Taylor Otwell on recently, uh, yeah. talking about Laravel, that was the case there too, where you sort of go to the the camp you like to hang out best at, and you create the worlds, the rails of that world, more or less. I mean, yep, right. And, so and DHH I, was I, just on the show a couple of shows back, and uh, a lot of people love that show. And we're hearing, I think you hear it repetitively in a good way, though. It's a good testament back to a lot of the things he helped instill into good web frameworks. Oh, definitely. And I, I still do Rails every other day, and I love it. So I think, you know, Rails got a ton right. And, um, you know, so we borrow, if you look at our router, um, we borrow some ideas there. So if a, someone doing Rails comes in and looks at Phoenix without having any Elixir experience, they'll kind of be like, hey, if they squint a little bit, um, that looks pretty similar. The DNA of Rails comes out. Yeah, but we aren't just trying to go feature for feature saying, yeah. okay, like, you know, we need it's not a feature clone. X. Right. Right. Gotcha. Kind of like those uh, those movies that aren't they're not like a retelling of a of a, of a nonfiction. They're like based on a true story. <laughs> you know those where you know like this is not actually a true story. It's just based on a yeah. true story. Well, it's kind of like you know yeah. you want inspired to, by yeah, and you want to you want to think differently. And um, we, we've definitely borrowed some ideas um, from other areas too. Uh, so we're, we're not just looking at Rails. We're looking at um, like you know Socket IO was a big inspiration for our real time layer. And I think the problem that people coming into uh, Elixir initially from any other language will say, okay, well, we don't have a device for Phoenix yet. Let's make device. So instead of, which is the wrong way to think about it. If you, if you need user authentication, then you should start thinking about how do I solve user authentication you know, in a functional mindset. So I think uh-huh. um, that's why I just want to caution that we're not just trying to say, okay, how do we make, how do we clone Rails in Phoenix? No, it's like, how do you, how do we think about the spirit of Rails and how do we apply that and um, some of the good stuff that we can bring over to what works best in Elixir and what, what we need to fulfill our needs. Yeah, I mean, you got to play to the strengths of your of your language and, and your environment. Where are you drawing those those different ideas from, if not directly from Rails, uh, from other experiences, from other projects in the Elixir ecosystem, from elsewhere? Yeah, so I mentioned, so the big thing for me when I started getting into, looking into this was doing real-time events from my Rails app. So when I saw Elixir and right up on Erlang, you know, I immediately realized that this would be perfect for solving the real-time nature that I wanted with my application. Uh, so Socket.io, I had a little bit of like Node experience, played with Socket.io a little bit. And um, Socket.io is awesome because it just lets you, gives you a browser client 
And on the node server side, you can just push and receive events, and it's super simple. Uh, so I kind of drew on that API a little bit in that experience to say I want real-time events from my browser to my Phoenix app to be as trivial as building like a REST backend. Like if you're building a REST backend and whatever framework you're using, like you can just snap your fingers and you know instantly how you would build that. Uh, so that's um, kind of the big push on our real-time layer was looking at Socket.io, and then we kind of extended that a little bit um, to kind of namespace events. Um, but I'd say that's been a big uh, inspiration for us. So WebSocket support came in early and is like production ready, or what's the status of your of your WebSocket support? Yeah, so WebSocket support is production ready, and since then, uh, since ElixirConf, uh, we've added it falls back to long polling, uh, so it's going to work in I think IE eight plus now. Um, falls back to long polling transparently, and um, you can uh, just drop it in Phoenix JS, and uh, it just works. Awesome. Have you had? Uh... Have you had success with people out there in the community trying it? Have you built it? any of your own projects with it? Yeah, so we're using it um, in one of our own uh, projects, which unfortunately I can't share publicly. Um, but people are using it kind of all over the place. Uh, someone uh, recently built like a, uh, right around Christmas time, you could play uh, Jingle Bells <laughs> remotely with like a party of people. Hmm. So kind of like, you know, you could coordinate. They they did this like timing algorithm, so you could ring your bell and play like, you know, the Jingle Bells chime, you know, across iPhone to iPhone, just using Phoenix channels. Nice. Uh, so I think gaming could be a big, uh, a big area. Like someone, I haven't seen this come to fruition, but someone was looking into using uh, Phoenix channels um, over to like an Unreal Engine. Hmm. So like a native desktop app, but, you know, pushing out the real-time events back and forth. So kind of outside of the HTML server web space, I think it, Phoenix could have a, a happy home there too. Yeah, I even saw that you uh, have some iOS support going on. Want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, so I think, you know, as I mentioned at ElixirConf, um, Phoenix is great at building just what you would think of as HTML web applications and APIs, but I kind of wanted to go beyond that because the web is kind of transitioning, changing a little bit. You know, I don't think browsers are going anywhere, and I'm a web developer, but I think we have all these... um, native apps, native clients, Internet of Thing movement coming on, and we need a framework to be able to connect all these devices and push out events and talk to them. So I think uh, Phoenix is well-positioned for that, and I kind of, for version 1.0, we have an iOS client um, that is, I think it works on, it's a Swift client, um, so it's not going to work on any of your uh, Objective-C libraries, but someone has put together an Objective-C library, and uh, we're going to ship with an Android client as well for 1.0. So you should be able to write mobile applications that are native and have them talking to the same backend that your web application is talking to from the browser. That's pretty nice. We're hearing a lot more about the Internet of Things. I mean, I think that's, we heard that, Jared, with uh, some things we haven't released yet with Beyond the Code. When we talked about mm-hmm. what in software ex- inspires and excites people was a lot of the things that ties into like devices, um, things like the watch, for example, or other things that are inside your home. I'm a, I'm a little bit wishy-washy on the Internet of Things myself. It seems like it's very nebulous and kind of, I don't know, I don't think aspirational is the right word, but pie in the sky, but they're ha- like the real-world applications of it don't seem like they're actually all that useful. Like, you know, your toaster can tell you when your toast is done. It's like, yeah, but I can I can look at my toast and see that it's burnt, right? Um yeah. What, what is, or your toaster? What are your thoughts? Your toaster can list itself on eBay. Did you see that? No. It, there was someone made one where if you didn't use it in X amount of days, it would automatically eBay itself. Oh, so it could be sold to someone that would use it. That's, yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of our applications yeah, I, I, are just I somewhat, kind of like, I somewhat agree with you. Yeah, they're they're they're, they're very kind of silly kind of uh, novelties right now. I'm sure it's just because it's very fringe and just upcoming and very much a buzzword, but. Um, no doubt yes, we'll need software I, I to drive those, you know, those interactions. Um, whether or not they're valuable or not, we're going to have to find out. Find out, I guess. Well, for you, Chris, though, what right. when you say Internet of Things, as as in regards to Phoenix and Elixir, what are you thinking of? So for me, I so I think I, I kind of agree that you know Internet of Things is just a it's a hype right now that we haven't really seen great applications of it. But I think even even in the mobile space, if we just talk smartphones, you know, that is we already have the Internet of Things in my mind. Everyone's walking around permanently connected to the internet with a square in their hand. 
so I think from that perspective, um, coming from, again, I, you know, I'm not trying to pick on Rails, but coming from a Rails background, I just don't see it in that mindset of being able to have all these connected devices. I can't do that in Ruby just based on the concurrency model, at least not super well. Uh-huh. Uh, so for me, just from like the, the mobile um, landscape, I want to have a framework that I can maintain a persistent connection to my devices and you know, push out real-time updates. Like uh, someone um, recently wrote an app that uh, they use Phoenix channels to track uh, shipments for a new startup. So they're, they have a uh, web browser. It's an Ember app, and it's listing you know, where the drivers are at all times. So it's a native application pushing out updates over Phoenix channels and shows you in real time on a map in the browser where your drivers are. So things like that, um, I think, is what I'm talking about with Internet of Things. But I think the the toaster and stuff, I think maybe in four or five years we'll see useful applications. I think a good application of what you're talking about just with the phone, the device connectedness um, is is the Meerkat app, which kind of is blown up in the last couple of weeks, um, which is a Twitter based. It's an I, it's an iPhone app. You guys probably have seen it posted to Twitter, where you can immediately start streaming live. Um, just post a tweet out to Twitter. I think it's like a single click to start streaming video from your phone, and anybody from their phones can just click, and they're now streaming your video live to their phones, hmm. very simply. Cool. And you know, this is the kind of thing that just wasn't even possible a couple of years ago, right? I mean. Now we have the pervasiveness yep. of LTE. We all have the devices. We have the software. There has to be infrastructure behind that, right? Just, you, know, you get the yeah. bandwidth costs, which is what I think about. Is like, man, how long can these guys just burn money before they probably open Twitter buys them or something? But how long can they just burn money on bandwidth? You know, before they start making some money of their own. But then also, like, there's servers back there driving these things, and the ability that all of a sudden have thousands of streaming video connections. Seems like Erlang and the the OTP stuff that it does is kind of well suited for those kinds of large um, communities. What do you think about that, Chris? Yeah, yeah? exactly. Exactly. I was going to say the uh, I went to Erlang Factory uh, last year. I think that's the first time I had talked about Phoenix publicly, and uh, one of the WhatsApp engineers was there, and they were he was talking about that where they. Um, turned on the feature for sharing image and video and they weren't sure how it was going to scale because he was talking about you can't really you can't really load test these things you can't fake so if you it have, yeah if you have, yeah if you have 400 million users you can't say okay let, let's see how this is going to work throw some servers behind it you can't really load test yeah. it so they had to do a live and uh, it just worked huh. and they were able to you know turn on the and that was kind of you know sharing video and images so i think you know very similar to what you were just talking about yeah Awesome. So the channel support is really unique, I think, um, and interesting. What else does Phoenix bring to the table as far as a framework goes? Do you consider it a full stack framework? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the goal is, I think, you know, I, it's not a micro framework. I, I hate that word. I think, you know, if you want to be a library, libraries are fine. Yeah. Some people like building their applications out from small composable pieces. But I think in practice, at least building a lot of Rails applications and inheriting a lot of Rails applications, I think having a set of conventions and a set of full features and obvious ways to do things is great for a community. So yeah, it's definitely the, it's a batteries included framework. So give us some of those batteries. What, what you got in there? Cool. So we have uh, similar to, I mentioned our, our router is somewhat similar to Rails. So you can have this DSL for routing requests into your controllers. And we have a, uh, our view layer is kind of neat because you can render, we kind of separated the idea of views and templates. So views are more your presentation layer and views render templates. And a special thing, at least about what we do, is we precompile all the templates into the view module. So at runtime, you're just calling a function and it's returning you, it's basically doing string, string concatenation. Huh. Whereas, you know, other frameworks can't really pre-compile these things, so they have to read from disk and cache it and go through all this work. But since we have metaprogramming in Elixir, all that content in your template files is just pre-compiled and baked directly in as a function call. Is that how all the metaprogramming works in Elixir? It's all at compile time? Yeah, all at compile time. So we can do a bunch of work at compile time, and at runtime it's super fast. You don't have to worry about caching these things. You're not doing any disk reads because it's all just in memory. Uh, so, but it's just as robust and um, powerful as what you would think of in like a scripted language that's not being compiled. So, like people are seeing, like to give you an idea, people are seeing microsecond 
um, response times, rendering templates in Phoenix, which is kind of cool. Mm. What else you got? You got, so routing, is, I'm sure there's, uh, it seems like you have MVC, but you also have a, a what you call a view layer and a template layer. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, views are basically like a, a presenter, the presenter pattern if you're coming from an object-oriented mindset, but we push it further too. So if I'm in a controller, I can say, you know, render my show template. And you can explicitly specify the content type or it will use the content type from the uh, accept headers. So if it was an HTML request, it's going to render the HTML template. Um, but we also are promoting the mindset of your view should render everything. So if you want to render JSON, if you're just building like a JSON API, your view is just a module that's going to construct that JSON uh, for the caller. Uh, so we kind of, I think I at least haven't seen that in other areas where we're kind of pushing things out of the controller and keeping your controllers really clean mm-hmm. and making the view present whatever uh, you know was requested. And then obviously um, on top of that, our channel layer is probably the biggest, uh, I'd say, innovation and in, um, what draws people in. And that's what you can do. Uh, you can push out uh, real-time pub sub events to the browser today and um, hopefully you know iOS and Android coming soon. Cool. So that view layer, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a presenter or a, a decorator layer, but it can itself... Just serialize JSON, so you wouldn't even have to have templates at all. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you would still be rendering a view. You wouldn't be constructing the JSON in the controller as like a as a map in the controller. What if you do want to have just straight up HTML templates with generated server side markup? Is that all? Yeah. So then, good too? then you yeah you would just create a HTML.ex template and uh, say render index.html and it would. It would, it would pre-compile that and render it, uh, so it would be just the same. And that, I assume, has your your typical helper methods or whatever they're called in Elixir. Are they called functions? Is everything a function? Yeah, everything's a function. I, I tend I, Helpers is an accurate way to describe it, too. So your, okay. your views can define um, all the helper methods for its templates, whether that template is, whether that's going to be your HTML template or just you know JSON directly in the uh, uh, module body. Awesome. So as far as full stack goes, is there anything missing at this point? So uh, we're pretty close to 1.0, although I, I say that and I don't want to give any hard dates, but <laughs> I'd say what's yeah, missing for sure. I saw in your sure, video that you said uh, end of, by the end of the year you'd be at 1.0, but that well, was I, last I year. <laughs> I, didn't say which, I didn't say which year. Uh, right? <laughs> he's pulling a pearl on us, Jared. <laughs> yeah. He's pulling a so software it, developer I, I, on us. <laughs> yeah, I, I pushed it back to... Uh, uh, I've said quarter one this year, but we're coming up on that. But no, really, I think we're actually quite close now. Um, what is missing is uh, like internationalization. We used to have uh, what we tore it out because um, we're working on something better. Uh, so we might release 1.0 without internationalization um, and then release like, release like a 1.1 uh, with it. Uh, so that's been taken out now. And um, I think for now, we're just trying to settle on our channel API and make sure our, um, you know, we'll, the current APIs that we have are are good because you know, we don't want to lose. We can't release one zero and immediately break things. But the core features there, you know, are, are baked in. So we have routers, uh, controllers, views. Uh, we even have a. We refer to them as endpoints. So uh, we're not like a monolith like Rails. So you can kind of bring in Phoenix into an existing uh, OTP app, or you can run multiple Phoenix uh, endpoints within an app. And um, everything kind of just works along the lines of you can have as many of these things running as you want. Um, and then along with that, what we've recently done is you know, we've had channels for a long time, but we recently um, supported different pub sub adapters. So the channel channels operate on top of a pub sub layer. And the problem that we used to have is if you weren't running Elixir uh, nodes clustered together, like on Heroku, dynos can't talk to each other. Um, you couldn't really make use of channels over dynos that weren't clustered. Uh, so we recently added a Redis adapter, and anyone can implement their own PubSub adapter now where we kind of use a PubSub adapter to broker the um, events. So now on Heroku, across your dynos, it's just going to work. Or if you're running Elixir distributively, it's just going to fall back to the standard library. So that was a big feature for us recently. One term I think we've glazed over a little bit is OTP. Yeah. Could you unpack that for the audience? Sure. Yeah, and I, you know, when I first saw this too, I was thinking like, what the heck is that? So OTP stands for Open Telecom Platform, which doesn't really tell you anything about what it is. Um, so it started off 
This is, you know, historically Erlang was built for um, telecommunication systems. That's where the open telecom platform comes from. Um, but really, the best way to describe it is it's Erlang's standard library for building concurrent distributed fault tolerant applications. And that's what uh, Elixir ships with as well. So anything you're doing as far as holding state or uh, we build out applications, we call them in like supervision trees. So you have supervisors that are going to uh, supervise um, different parts of your application. So if something crashes or something goes wrong, it's going to automatically be restarted by its supervisor. And that will kind of travel up the chain and um, all the way up to your application supervisor. And you, kind of, you know, So if everything crashes, the whole world's on fire, it will keep trying to restart in the entire you know, different chains of the application. Uh, so that's what OTP is, and um, you're going to use it um, everywhere. Use it everywhere. What, what is it actually, what's the benefit? Yeah, so uh, Elixir's concurrency model is, we call them, uh, our unit of concurrency is a process. It's not an operating system process. It's like a, a really lightweight thread. And uh, you can run like a million of them on like your, like on my MacBook. I can spin up a million processes so what OTP is, it's just uh, it built out a set of conventions for um, managing state in an application and responding to um, failure. And those are processes, and uh, they call, we call them gen servers. If we want to hold state in a process, we have to basically recurse on a process with its state over and over since we're an immutable language. So it's basically just a set of conventions that kind of naturally came about when uh, Erlang was solving these problems, and they codified it into OTP. Uh, so actually, the, the best way I've heard it described is it's it's the uh, the rails of concurrency. Nice, <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty accurate. All right, let's take a break real quick and hear from a sponsor. When we come back, we'll talk about deploying Phoenix to production. So we'll come back in just a second. I could not be more excited about this sponsor, Postico. Postico is a Postgres client for OS X, developed by a single independent developer named Jacob Egger. Jacob has open source chops as well. You may know him as the maintainer of Postgres.app, and he even used to work on SQL Pro back in the day. SQL Pro is a MySQL client for OS X that has a special place in my heart. It is a great client with a capital G, but unfortunately, it only supports MySQL. I'm a Postgres convert, and I've long been clamoring for a high-quality Postgres GUI for OS X. Postico aims to be just that. It has all the features you come to expect from an SQL client and more, but you know what? If something that you want is missing, you can contact Jacob. I can tell you from personal experience, he takes feedback and is very responsive, which is important to me when I'm investing in software. But the best part about Postico is that it is native to Yosemite and it is designed well. It fits right into the operating system. Copy and paste just works. Undo just works. Keyboard shortcuts, you bet. With Postico, gone are the days of using SQL GUIs that stick out like a sore thumb. There's a free trial, which has no time limit, so check it out, Postico. The best way is to Google that word, that's P-O-S-T-I-C-O. You'll find it at the very first hit. That's the simplest way to get where you need to go. Check out Postico. I love it, and I think you will too. Thanks to Jacob for supporting us, and let's get back to the show. All right, so we're back. Chris, let's talk about deploying. I think that's one of the things that tends to hold people up, you know, getting into production is one of the things. So what kind of environment do you have to deploy a Phoenix Framework app to? So um, it's actually funny because it's easier for me to deploy my Phoenix apps these days to Heroku than to deploy my Rails apps. And I don't know why. Like I, I did some benchmarking recently and it took me like two hours to get this Rails app started up even though I do Rails full time. Um, but it, Elixir is actually pretty easy to deploy if we're, if we're not talking uh, some of the more advanced features. Um, it's pretty easy to build on any kind of you know Unix, Linux uh, box. We ship with, uh, usually a lot of people, if you're deploying it yourself, you'll run it behind like a Nginx proxy. Um, but it will happily serve you know directly over uh, port 80 if you wanted to you know live on the dangerous side. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not, it's not too hard to stand up. Um, Elixir, uh, I usually, I tend to build from source. And haven't had any problems. Um, Erlang uh, is available um, for pretty much any distribution you can think of. Um, and Heroku has a build pack for it, so it's pretty easy to stand an app up on Heroku uh, quickly. And then if you want to get into like advanced deployments, um, we haven't mentioned this yet, but Erlang and Elixir has this idea of uh, hot code uh, uploading. 
So I can upgrade my code in production from like one state to the next and um, for literally zero downtime deploys. So not like, you know, some, some people are doing where you have like Nginx, like serve all the requests and then wait and shove the request onto a new um, instance. It's actually like literally I can update a module from one piece of code to the next and have what it was doing pass that off to the new code, if that makes any sense. How does that work, man? Magic. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it sounds like magic to me. Yeah. So, so I don't have experience in this regard. Uh, we have we do have a guide up. Uh, it's called uh, they're called uh, releases. We do have a guide up on phoenixframework.org for performing these, and it will work. Uh, but you have to you have to think about a lot of things in your code to make sure they can work well with releases. So that's the only thing. Like if you don't need that absolutely you know critical zero time downtime deploy uh, type setup, it's it's, I would say, not worth it. So you have to kind of weigh the odds of development cost of maintaining that, and then you also really have to test releases because um, you want those things to work perfectly. Um, so if you're like a telecommunication company, um, for example, like the joke is you've never heard, like AT&T doesn't call you up and say, you know, sorry, you can't make a phone call tonight from 6 to 10 p.m. because we're going down for scheduled maintenance. Like you never, that never happens. No. So I think for <laughs> for some um, for some companies, they can, they can do that, and they have been doing that successfully. Uh, so you kind of have to just weigh the odds. Um, but that does work. Uh, there's a tool called uh, EXRM, which is like Elixir uh, release tool for building releases and performing uh, hot code swapping. But it definitely requires some more TLC, I'd say. Hmm. So just to be clear, we're not talking about a rolling restart. We're talking about live code swapping, just like, bam. Yeah, exactly. So that yeah, you can do a rolling restart. But yeah, this is, this is like a whole other ballgame of... If I have like you know, if I have a counter keeping track of number of active users, and that thing's in the middle of like running a piece of code, that module, if I update that counter module, the new piece of code will get the previous state of what that counter was, and you actually write a callback in a function to say, "There's a code change. Like here's what here's the state that I had. Now you take it and make it into some new state that you want to handle." Hmm. If that makes any sense. Uh, so it's. Pretty, I mean, pretty amazing that these kind of things are built in. Uh, but like I said, it's going to take some more work. Is this the language level or Phoenix level? This is at the language level. Okay. This the is, advantages uh, Erlang, of being on Erlang because, right. like you said, the telephone companies didn't have the luxury of downtime like we have with the web. Right. So I think what I recommend to people is, you know, rolling restarts are totally fine. And I think, you know, to some degree, you, you're going to have to write your application around, you know, if someone trips over the server power cord, things are to go down anyway. So you still want to be able to react to going offline anyway. Uh, so I think unless you have the, the peculiar you know, use case for releases, um, I think at least getting started, you don't have to really worry about it. But if you do have those high demand, uh, I think there's a, it's not WhatsApp, there's another Erlang chat app that they're running on releases. Um, so you know, they're, they're like guaranteeing message delivery type stuff. Uh, so it's really cool if you have a, especially if you're running kind of some software as a service like, uh, like you know, Pusher or uh, some of those companies where, you know, you can't really stand to have messages dropped. You have to guarantee that there's not going to be any kind of blip. Uh, it's a nice option. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the community. One thing I've noticed so far is you've just referred to it as we pretty much the entire conversation yeah. when speaking about Phoenix. Who's all involved in Phoenix and then, by extension, the Elixir community? Tell us about that. Sure. So uh, we've had the uh, great fortune of uh, Jose Valim has joined the Phoenix core team. Uh, so he's been uh, working on Phoenix quite a bit for the last several months, and he's contributed some of the biggest features uh, as of late. Um, so it's Jose is a, a big core contributor. Uh, we've recently, uh, we have uh, Jason Steves, um, Sonny Scroggin, and I'm, I'm going to miss a few people here. Uh, but we have a set of, I think, five people on the core team right now. And the community in general, I think, is one of Elixir's biggest assets as far as, um, you know, we're trying to establish um, the meme in the community of, you know, we're very help- helpful and welcoming because a lot of these concepts are difficult to get started in, especially if you're coming into Phoenix, you're, you're listening to this podcast, and you're like, wow, this sounds great. Let me dive in. So suddenly you're learning, like, a new web framework. You're learning a new language. Then you have this like OTP thing that you're trying to learn. So it's like a new programming paradigm. So like there's like seven different things that are like totally new to you. Um, so we're trying to kind of build a community around um, being very supportive, asking for help, receiving help, 
And I think we've been pretty successful with that. Where you said uh, somebody pinged you earlier, I think it was in the pre-call, how you got pinged for coming on the show was in an RSC channel. What was that uh, RSC channel? Yeah, it's uh, Elixir Lang, Elixir hyphen Lang on uh, Freenode. Gotcha. That's where I direct anyone that's on Twitter mentions anything about Elixir. I tell them to hop on if they have you know get stuck or have any questions. Is there one specifically for Phoenix? Uh, so not yet. So whenever Jose gets tired of seeing all the Phoenix stuff in the Elixir channel, that we'll make our own. But for now, it's um, kind of one, one and the same right now. Yep. Yeah. Seems pretty savvy of Jose as the language author and obviously highly invested in the success of Elixir to participate in the development of Phoenix because um, adoption, especially of a language that suits itself so well to the web, um, could be highly dependent upon a popular and very high quality web framework. Do you think that was kind of the deciding factor of why you got involved or was it just pure excitement for what you're up to? Yeah, I think um, that that probably has something to do with it. I know from like from the beginning, um, Jose wanted to, you know, he comes from a web background and he had started a prototype web framework called Dynamo um, while he was building Elixir. So from the beginning, he was definitely thinking about um, how Elixir is well suited to web. But I think it was uh, Bruce Tate uh, had convinced him that he couldn't do, he couldn't write a web framework and a new programming language at, at the same time. Mm. Just it was too much. So instead, he, uh, he built Plug, which was like a uh, HTTP uh, middleware and like web server abstraction, kind of like Rack, if you're familiar from uh, Ruby. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead of, he kind of used that Dynamo framework to prototype some ideas and why he was building Elixir to see how they could coexist. And then um, step back from that, built that middleware library. And then that, that way I was able to come in and build on, build on top of his middleware. Uh, so I think it was just kind of like, you know, the timing altogether, you know, while he was finishing Elixir, I had found Plug and started building Phoenix on top of Plug. And then he was able to finish Elixir, and then he hopped on board. Uh, so kind of timelines worked out really well. And I think, um, yeah, the Phoenix's code base is, is definitely, it's been hugely beneficial to have him on board. It's awesome. So you'd say that Phoenix is still built on top of Plug and still has this middleware thing going on? Yeah, so, and that's, the big thing for us is I, I didn't want to hide the the Plug layer. So, like, if you're coming, you know, I, I've been talking about Rails a lot, but I come from a, a Rails background, like uh, you don't really, you, you know, you're running on top of a rack, but unless you're using rack middleware explicitly, you're, you, you don't, in day to day, you're not thinking about it. Whereas in Phoenix, uh, we very we coexist with plug at a much finer level. So you have to be kind of aware of the plug concepts and any kind of middleware or any kind of like uh, filtering you do on a request is all happening um, with a plug API. Interesting. So it looks like you just released 0.10. Um, with a whole bunch of goodies in there, including live reload support, which kind of amazes me because I've never seen live reload done without an extension, um, which I'm assuming you're just using the WebSocket support to kind of shove that in there. Yeah, so the yeah zero ten is super exciting for me just because we've we've gotten we've like streamlined the development experience. So like it feels like like I have a I have a more enjoyable development experience um, today with Phoenix than I do with Rails, at least you know starting out. Uh, so with Live Reload, since we have the channel WebSocket layer built in, we ba- I basically thought, you know, last month I was like, wait a second, why can't I just inject that little bit of JavaScript on the end of the body of your HTML page and then uh, watch the file system for changes and and just basically dog food our own real-time system. So it ended up being like, you know, 20 lines of code to have Live, live Reload work. And it doesn't require Node.js, doesn't require a browser plugin, it's all just... Kind of dog fooding our own real time APIs. That is really cool. You also have some asset pipeline stuff. You've got um, some new form helpers. Looks like it's you're really adding the goodies now. Tell us about 1.0 and then give us a, just a brief overview of what you see for the future of Phoenix. Sure. Yeah. So uh, 1.0 is basically like we said, going to be a full stack uh, framework. Uh, we have we are using uh, we're using Brunch, which is a Node uh, build tool for asset compilation. Um, so we didn't want to write our own asset pipeline because we didn't think. I mean, there are mature uh, solutions out there. So we evaluated like half a dozen of the popular Node options. I have like huge amount of hours in that. But we ship with you know you just throw your CSS and your ES6 JavaScript uh, SAS into a specific folder and it just gets compiled. So you don't really have to think about 
um, brunch or note or anything. It just works. So you have kind to have of wrap it a little bit. Pre-installed on your machine or something? Yeah. It, if you install Phoenix, it will detect that you have Node installed and automatically set it up. So uh, if you have Node installed already, it will just work. Um, otherwise, you can forego uh, the brunch integration, but then you just have to build your own build tool. Um, but we have a uh, good asset story. Uh, real-time events is in for 1.0. Uh, so I think, you know, f- for now, from here until I think the end of April, which is ElixirConf EU, is what, what we're targeting for a 1.0 release. It's just going to be about stabilizing the APIs. Uh, there's some channel work that I want to get in place that is going to make channels uh, a little nicer to deal with at, like, the concurrency level, but it's kind of a uh, implementation detail. Uh, but but the biggest feature remaining for 1.0, uh, I haven't mentioned yet, is being able to replay channel messages. So if I'm... Online, if I've written a chat app in Phoenix and I drive under a, bit, a bridge on my cell phone, right now you'd miss any of those messages that were broadcasted out through the server. So we want to be able to buffer those messages on the server, and then when the client reconnects after they get out of the tunnel, it just flushes the buffer. Uh, so we're going to include that, uh, hopefully as a 1.0 release uh, with mobile clients. And I think that would be a, a solid 1.0 release to compete with, with most of the uh, frameworks out there, except we should be able to take on the world, so to speak, as far as uh, scalability goes. And beyond 1.0, what you got? So I have some ambitious goals, I'd say, with my ElixirConf talk. Uh, I talked about distributed services, and this is be something that we probably, uh, this would be something that lived under the Phoenix Framework organization on GitHub, but not part of Phoenix Core itself. Um, but the idea is we have, you know, Elixir, uh, I haven't mentioned this, but you can, you write code to run on one machine, and the, you can uh, run that on 50 machines connected together, and it's pretty much the same code. So the concurrency model is distributed uh, at its heart. So you don't really have to think about um, receiving a message from a different um, server on your cluster. It's all just uh, baked into the concurrency model. So the idea there is I want to be able to write a, a service layer that I can spin up uh, multiple nodes running um, kind of different services. So if I have a I'm writing a search engine uh, in Elixir, and I'm using Phoenix. I want to be able to say, okay, I have a uh, page indexer service that is pretty expensive. It has to make uh, page requests, you know, parse the HTML, and I know that I can do a thousand of those on one box at a time. So I want to be able to spin up ten nodes running that code and have them register themselves on the cluster, saying, "Hey, I can perform the uh, page indexing work," or "Hey, I can perform the page crawling work," and then at my uh, at my application level code, I just want to be able to say, hey, service page crawler, uh, crawl this page. And it will find a node on the cluster that can do the work that's available, do the work for me, and give me the result. Uh, so there's the gist of kind of the ideas I'm playing with. Um, those are, I think there's a lot of hard problems to solve there around like, you know, cap theorem and distributed programming, but Elixir enables all that. And it's really exciting to me that that's all possible. So you're getting a lot of benefits into Phoenix itself from Elixir. Just, oh, yeah. uh, you know, choosing the right kind of language and then getting a lot of the benefits from the language itself. Yep. Like I mentioned in my uh, in ElixirConf talk too, like if you're running channels, you can, if I'm running channels on 10 different machines, I could have one machine dedicated to um, streaming Twitter results. And if I find something interesting on Twitter, it can broadcast it out on a channel and that would show up in the browser. Uh, so as long as it's connected to the cluster, I could, you know, have, like I said, have one machine dedicated to doing these things. And you just push out an event, and it gets re, re, uh, broadcasted out to any listeners on the cluster. Wow. And that's just built in. That's just, The concurrency model is if I send you a message, it's just going to go over the network, but the process could be you know, located on any machine. But it's the same as if I was writing that for just my laptop. It's pretty cool. That does sound pretty cool. So let's talk about getting into the closing here for the call, just uh, for listeners' sake. I've been waiting to ask this because I've been waiting my tongue over here on on getting started because I feel like you got so much stuff that we've talked about for those who could be coming from Ruby, so maybe a uh, you know a similar look to the syntax, but once you get deeper in, as as we said before, it's not the same. Um, but still, some of the fundamentals, some of the DNA of Rails is in Phoenix, and so you kind of have a home away from home. But how do you get started? I know that Elixir one dot or plus is a requirement. Is Elixir on most machines? How do you yeah, how do you get uh, started with Elixir or, or with Elixir and also Phoenix? Sure. So Elixir, yeah, Elixir Lang, Elixir-Lang.org has uh, getting started guides for pretty much all major platforms. So if it's if you're on a Mac, you can do uh, brew install Elixir. Uh, if you're on Linux, it's just you know apt. 
Um, so it's easy to get running, um, looks for okay. itself. And then for Phoenix, uh, we have phoenixframework.org getting started guys as well. Um, and just takes you step by step. Um, you should have a, um, an app up and running, um, with, you know, live reload and assets and, in under, you know, a couple minutes, I think, you know, in the, in the latest zero 10 release video, I showed that where you just run mix Phoenix new, it generates a new project and sets you up and you're ready to go. Well, I'm just about a minute or two. What's the what's the hello world, the perfect hello world for someone listening right now to jump into? The to perfect, like go towards. If they're gonna build something with Phoenix, I'd say yeah. like a little a little chat app. I have a, I put a little example out. Um it's like the the chat app is like the uh the real time to do list type thing. Like if right. you're on if you're coming from like Node or Meteor JS, you're like, Oh, I can make a chat app so easily. But I think that's a good one because it just kind of shows you how easy it is to push events back and forth. Uh, so I'd say, yeah, check out a, a Phoenix chat app. Kind of fun to get get your feet wet. Awesome. We we uh, I do want to take a time a second to mention this too for those who are listening that are members. Um, we've been working with Elixir Sips for quite a while. We've never had a, a show, obviously, on Elixir or Phoenix for that matter. But um, for those who are members, we do have a discount with Elixir Sips at seventy seven percent off. 77% off to be more clear. Um, it's about six bucks for the first three months. So to get started on some of these things, I know that uh, they do such a great job on, uh, on you know, just exposing a lot of this knowledge. So diving into getting deployment started, all sorts of stuff. So remember, take advantage of that for sure. But we do ask some really awesome questions heading out of the show. And our favorite to ask is, uh, who's your programming hero? Programming hero. Uh, so no, many doesn't matter. I mean, just share. Gotcha. So I'd say uh, Matt's uh, from Ruby would probably be up there. Um, I think just because it kind of embraced being um, a happy programmer and having a language that kind of put that at the forefront uh, for me was like a breath of fresh air coming into Ruby gotcha. where, um, you know, I don't think, at least I had no experience where before, you know, the creator was like programming should be, you should be happy. We should um, all be nice to each other and it should be a enjoyable experience. And that's kind of the way I feel about programming. It's like a, it's a creative process and, uh, brings me a lot of joy. So I think that, um, has really shaped a lot of people's opinions about programming. So he, that, he'd probably be up there with that. Another one we like to ask is, uh, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, which is building out Phoenix on Elixir, uh, using Elixir, what, if you weren't doing that, what would you be doing? Um, probably something, uh, like aerospace industry. I'm a, I'm a huge space nerd. So, uh, space has always been a passion of mine. Um, so I think something in the, you know, planetary science, aerospace industry, but, um, from a programming perspective, I always think that like the Mars Rover, for example, like they, they uh, update the code on that thing on Mars. So I always think like, you know, if, I, if there's a bug in my code, I get like a, Something went wrong. Error page on, on the web <laughs> yeah. browser, but I don't know. That, I don't know that I would have the stomach for that industry. Just like you know, <laughs> rake deploy, and you know it's running on Mars. So I think, um, yeah, definitely <laughs> space is a huge interest of mine. Uh, wait, I don't like know if two I and a half years or something for your code to get out there, right? Yeah. Well, you have to. Yeah, like it, best case, like some people you write code <laughs> and then ten years later you're yeah you're hoping it works. So I think. Uh, well, I, I'm I'm super passionate about that. So something along those lines. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I guess a good another good one for closing out is a call to arms to your projects, Elixir, Phoenix. Um, you know, where are some ways that the community listening to the show now could step in? Where's a good place to either help out with the language itself or help out with the framework and join the core team or help out? Where's a good place to start? Yeah, so uh, phoenixframework.org is uh, the best place to start and also Elixir Lang IRC is, um, you know, I live on there. I'm probably on there too much, um, but I'm happy to help anyone out that uh, wants to jump in. And I think um, if you already have some experience in Elixir, um, you can always, you know, contribute and give back, whether it's helping someone else out that has questions or um, now is kind of a great time to get in early and start putting together third-party packages. So, like, you know, the plug middleware that we talked about, um, that's kind of the open season for if you want to build, you know, a first-class authentication system, kind of all these different big uh checklist items that the community doesn't have yet you know start building something and might find a problem that's not solved and you can solve it and kind of give back awesome and uh 
What is your GitHub? What is your Twitter? How can people follow you to kind of keep up with you in general besides IRC? When you're- sure, it's uh, Chris underscore McCord on Twitter and then just Chris McCord on GitHub. Awesome. Chris, is there anything else you want to mention as we close out? Uh, like I said, I just published uh, Metaprogramming Elixir on Pragprog. Oh, yes. So check that out uh, if you Is that read, pre-order uh, now or is it, is it uh, available? No, it's, it's out. It's been out for about a month and a half. So nice. check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes for that. Uh, maybe uh, I'll ask you now. Do you have any discount codes you can give our listeners? I don't at the moment, but uh, I can see what I can do. Awesome. So if you're listening, check the show notes. We'll see if we can get one. If we can get one, cool. If not, we'll just uh, we'll just flame Chris and RSC or something like that. So. <laughs> no problem. Also, awesome. uh, check out ElixirConf uh, EU. It's uh, end of April in uh, Krakow, Poland. And I'll be there uh, talking about Phoenix. So it should be a lot of fun. We've got the Jose, uh, creator of Elixir, be there. And the uh, creator of Erling, Joe Armstrong, is also giving a keynote. So it should be pretty cool. Stuff. All right. Well, that's it for this show, everybody. Thanks for listening to uh, this great conversation. I, I love the, you know, I was quite silent in this one just because some of the stuff is over my head. When you said OTP, I was thinking something else. But uh you know great conversation today so thanks for coming on the show and uh with that let's say goodbye see ya see you later